into a fresh sermon series called The Songs of Advent, where we'll be looking at different songs, hymns of praise uh, that were uttered uh, that first Advent, that first time of blessing when the Lord arrived. And we'll have the blessing of different preachers from across our Grace DC network bringing those sermons. And so it's my joy this morning uh, to introduce to you Pastor Russ Whitfield, uh, pastor of Grace Mosaic, who will be kicking off um, this series. And in particular, I'm grateful uh, that Russ can be here, uh, not only because of the brilliant mind that the Lord has gifted him with in being able to think the things of God and Scripture and to teach them well, but the way in which God has, I think, uniquely given him the capacity to bring about the music of the gospel, the way that the gospel moves and stirs our souls, the ways in which our affections are engaged by the power and the beauty of what Christ has done for us. I think our brother Russ uniquely is able to do that. And so, especially as we consider the songs of Advent and this particular beautiful song, the song of Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, uh, grateful that you could be here and grateful that this friend and brother uh, could be a part of our community this morning. So let's put our hands together and let's welcome our brother. And thank you, Russ. I should have had a recording on. I could play that wherever I go. You know what I'm saying? Thank you so much. A very gracious and kind uh, word of encouragement. I'm really grateful to be here with you all, especially in this uh, kickoff to Advent. I don't know about y'all, but this, is, this season is hitting at the right moment uh, for me. And I, I would imagine so many of us, that life has been hard in the world over the last 43 years. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> no, but seriously, I, I'm, I, I often underappreciate how significant it is to be given space to just name things and work through them and, and lean into it and, and weep your way toward a better day. And so... That's what I, I'm hopeful that our, our time in the text will, will cue up for us this morning. So if you would please join me uh, as we come to the Lord in prayer and we will get going. Father, thank you for inviting us uh, to be a family, uh, inviting us to lean on one another and to limp forward uh, on our way home. Um, Lord, we confess um, that we need the good news that you alone offer uh, we feel it in our bones, we feel it in our schedules, we feel it in our relationships, we feel it in our bodies, our deep need of your transforming touch of the hope that you offer. And, and Lord, we thank you for attaching so many precious promises to your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be uh, creative listeners as we hear your word preached, to be able to connect dots to the actual lives we, that we live to deeper, uh, to deeper um, faith uh, that you call us to, to really believe. Lord, we, we believe, but help our unbelief. And, and, and we ask that you would give us the courage and, and the faith to walk forward in the things that we have heard, to be hearers and doers of your word. I pray for, especially for the saints in here this morning uh, and our dear neighbors who are bearing a load of suffering. I pray that this message would, would lift their hearts. So hear these prayers and be with us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
few years ago, there was a documentary that came out, and I watched it, and the name of the documentary was Soundtrack for a Revolution. Uh, and, and what was interesting is, is that this, this documentary was a very creative way of, of telling the story of the civil rights movement. But it didn't just tell the story in, in a sort of bald fashion. Uh, what, what this documentary did is that it, it, it outlined the story of the civil rights movement through the music of the civil rights movement. Because civil rights workers would sing songs and, and spirituals and hymns on the, the, the journey toward civil rights. And they would sing these songs when they were praying for change. They would sing these songs as they were laboring for justice. They would sing these songs as they suffered losses. They even were able to sing these songs as they were terrorized and killed. Dr. King himself said that these freedom songs, quote, played a strong and vital role in the struggle. They gave the people new courage and a sense of unity. They kept alive a faith and a radiant hope in the future during the most trying of times. Dr. King called these songs the soul of the movement. But what I found really interesting and compelling about this documentary is that it didn't just give you black and white footage of, of folks from back in the 60s singing these songs. What they actually did is they had contemporary artists who would come in and sing contemporary renditions of that same music. John Legend, The Roots, Angie Stone, Wycliffe. They took these songs and they made them their own in the here and now so that they could carry on the work. Now, if you can understand something of what this documentary did, then you can understand what is happening at the very beginning of Luke's gospel. What Luke is doing is he's giving us the soundtrack to a revolution through a series of songs that really give us the, the heartbeat, the, 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 the essence of the movement. Because, you know, th there is this revolution that took place in Genesis 3. But what God introduced when he sent his son Jesus Christ into the world is that he introduced the revolution against the revolution to restore things back to their original beauty, to restore things even beyond their original beauty and goodness to give us the hope of greater things to come. He has introduced a revolution to overthrow the tyrannical forces of sin Death and the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil, if you will. This is what God is overturning. And he's inviting us to sing these songs. There's more going on in these songs that meets the eye. And God is inviting us to sing these songs as we pray for change. He's inviting us to sing these songs as we labor for justice. He's inviting us to sing these songs as we face terror and suffer loss and even face the pall of death. And here's why. These songs give God's people new courage and a sense of unity because they're all about a living faith and a radiant hope that can carry us through the most trying of times. So today we come to the first of these songs. It's known as the Magnificat, which is Latin. That's the beginning of this, this passage. My soul magnifies the Lord. The Latin shorthand was the Magnificat. It's the song of Mary, the mother of Jesus. 
And what I want to do is I want to approach this text through two points. And these two points are all about what I see to be primary motivations in, in the formation of Mary's song. In other words, what led Mary to sing? And I think there are two things that led Mary to sing. Divine consideration and divine liberation. Divine consideration and divine liberation. So let's look at our first point, which is divine consideration. Now, as Mary's song develops, she brings out this really important theme that exists all through the scriptures. And it's the theme of the great reversal. Let me explain. As I said earlier in Genesis 3, after God creates this glorious, beautiful world, you know, marked by harmony and relationships and flourishing and creation and fruitfulness and multiplication and all of the goodness, Genesis 3 was the overturning of God's good and beautiful world. It was this great disruption that was introduced. But what God shows himself to be doing throughout the rest of the story is turning the world right side up. But what happened in, after Genesis 3 is that the righteous often found themselves on the bottom. And what God said to them was, don't worry, there is a reversal that is coming. It was often the case that the righteous found themselves in a situation of poverty and struggle as a result of injustices done against them. And God's message to them was, don't worry, the reversal is coming. I am going to reverse it. And, and God's people would often lament that it seemed like the wicked always wound up on top. That the rich were the ones who always, who, who always were able to hover over the troubles of this world. And what God said to his people is, don't worry. The reversal is coming. The reversal is all about flourishing introduced for those who have found it wanting in this life. And it's all about the humbling of those who have scraped and kicked and clawed and stepped over their fellow man to get to the top through unjust means. And God was saying, you can trust me to make things right. You can trust me. I don't know where you find yourself today. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what wrongs have been done against you. I don't know what griefs that you're bearing. But what the Lord is saying through Mary's song at the very beginning is, don't worry. The great reversal is coming. And this, I think, is what caused Mary, is part of what caused Mary to burst into praise. If you take a look at verse 48, it reads like this. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Now, other translations put it like this. He has had regard for the humble state of his servant. Still, another translation says he took notice of the humble estate of his servant. My favorite comes from Mean Gene Peterson also known as Eugene Peterson. Um, sorry, I'm a child who grew up with WWF, okay? This is what Eugene Peterson in the message says. He's, this is how he translated. God took one good look at me, and look what happened. God took one good look at me, and look what happened. You see, the first thing that causes Mary's heart to leap is that God noticed her. He noticed she was a woman in a man's world, but God noticed her. She was a Jew in a Gentile world, but God noticed her. She was poor in a rich man's world, but God noticed her. She was oppressed in a tyrant's world, and God noticed her. 
And doesn't this meet us in just in an essential human longing, a place of deep human longing? How much of our lives and how much of our mental bandwidth is spent just trying to get somebody to notice, to see us? That, that, that feels like it's such a, it eats up so much of our lives and so much of our attention, even at the subconscious level, we don't even realize it. And it, it really, you know, it, it's a feature of modern life where we, we, we're engaged in this work of self-making and projecting identities into the world so that people will recognize. And it starts from the very beginning of our lives. Babies cry out. Why? I need you to notice I'm hungry. Toddlers will bring you artwork that will last you for the rest of your days because they want to be noticed. They want you to see them. It doesn't stop there. When when young people get into junior high and high school, they want to be rocking the freshest styles and they want to make sure their shoes are right and they, they got it all together. Why? Because they want to be noticed. And then we go off and we go to college and we try to get good degrees and get a job. And when we get that new job, we try to work hard and do our work well because we want the boss to notice. And we try to get enough money put in the bank and become responsible enough so that at some point when we're ready in life, we can meet that special person and we can get their attention and we can be noticed. And then once you're married and you're in the marriage, listen, this is a pro tip. Fellas, if your wife comes up to you and says, do you notice anything different? You better find something quick, fast, in a hurry to notice about her, right? She wants to be noticed. And you know, it doesn't stop because as people grow older, parents, loved ones, sometimes one of the greatest pains that they face is the feeling that they're not noticed, that their kids have moved on with their life and they're not a part of it. That's part of the pain of aging It's communicated to us. It's the pain of feeling like you're invisible. People have sadly, grievously, have taken their own lives because they didn't feel like they were noticed. They felt like they were invisible. And in, in, in the, the pain of aging, so much of the mental health struggles that many of our young people are facing is because they don't feel like anyone notices. You know, I read this article. Um, it was a piece that was done where this actor was preparing for a role in which she was going to play um, someone who was experiencing homelessness. And so what she did is she dressed up for a day to try and experience it firsthand. This is just one day. And this is how she describes her experience. It's a little, it's about a paragraph, but I quote, okay? This is what she says. When I passed people, they would intentionally look away. I passed an outdoor patio of a bustling coffee shop with well-dressed, laughing colleagues, young mothers, and laptop-laden college students. Not one look. Each step, I grew more surprised that not one person would look at me with concern, offer me something to eat, or a hot cup of coffee. I longed for connection, but not one person would connect with me in any way. I simply could not believe that no one would acknowledge me in any way. Surely someone would stop to either say hello, hand me a dollar, or ask if I needed information on local shelters. That didn't happen. How quickly you begin to feel like a non-person, a waste of flesh. 
It is physically painful. Can it be that no one really cares? If I felt this bad in a few hours, I cannot begin to comprehend days, weeks, or years of this, end quote. Some of you in here today may, may know this pain very personally. And to you, we, as God's church, want to tell you, it grieves our hearts. It saddens us so much that you have experienced this, but we want you to know that we're trying to be the kind of community that is alleviating those realities, that is leaning into that, that is extending friendship and trying to help raise people up and invite them to new possibilities. This text is for you if that has ever been your experience because you know what God is saying to you by faith? There's a reversal coming. There's a reversal coming. You know, if the, if the gospel is not good news for the poor, it's not good news at all. If it's not good news for those who are hurting and weak and vulnerable, it's not good news at all. But it is true that it is good news for such as these. Mary is confident in the great reversal that is coming. And she would have us know that God notices, God has regard for us. And I think this is really amazing news when you, when you think about it. It's, it's incredibly gracious and humbling when you consider the fact that God often goes unnoticed by us. How often do we fail to have regard for him? In all of our pride, we fail to notice his truth. In all of our grasping for control, we fail to notice his wise and sovereign rule. In all of our greed and callousness, we fail to notice his generosity and blessing. In all of our accomplishments, we, we often fail to notice that it's, it's his animating spirit that created those victories in the first place. You know, all of this is the bad news about us. We're a people that fails to notice our neighbors primarily because we have failed to notice God. But even though that's the bad news about us, the good news is that even when we have failed to notice God, God never has failed to notice us. All through history, the Lord has gone to great lengths in order to convince you that he sees, that he notices, that you're on his mind, that you're in his heart. He looked on Adam in his sin and clothed him. He looked on Abraham in his despair and blessed him. He looked on Joseph in his imprisonment and he promoted him. He looked on Moses in his weakness and used him. He looked on Israel in their slavery and freed them. He looked at Israel in their exile and he retrieved them. And at the climax of history in the fullness of time, the father looked on his son in glory and sent him for us and for our salvation. Advent, listen, y'all, Advent is the proof that God has not only looked upon the humble estate of his servants, he has met us in it. It's not just past action for the patriarchs and matriarchs of our faith. This is a living truth for you and I to believe deeply, no matter what we're facing, whether it's health scares or relational breakdowns or threats to our lives or difficulties at work. The reality is that God has taken notice of us. God has taken one good look and look what happened. 
God took one good look at our sickness and sent a healer. God took one good look at our affliction and sent a comforter. He took one good look at our alienation and sent a mediator. And if you have any doubt ever that God cares for you, that God has taken notice of you, take one good look at your creator in the cradle. Take one good look at your master in the manger. Take one good look at your king on a cross. Take one good look at your redeemer in his resurrection. The one sentence testimony of the Christian is that God took one good look at me and look what happened. Look what happened to our guilt, our shame, and our fear. It has vanished. It has been driven away by the hope of his gospel. Look what happened to our lives and our trajectory. We've been sent. GPS has been plugged in. Glory. That's where we're headed. And we may be confused about how the Google map takes us here, there, and everywhere. But at the end of the day, God will get us to the destination that is known as glory. Look at what Christ has done to your relationships, to your work, to your heart when he took one good look at you. That is the, the, that is the hope that we have. It's not, it's not the, the tinsel and sentimentalization of the Christmas season that Christians are living for. No, what we have is a rock solid hope. A hope that can stare down the scariest realities, the most intimidating realities, and, and, and see through them to a risen Savior, to a loving God who will not leave us or forsake us. He is not an absentee landlord. He is Emmanuel, God with us, God in us, God for us. That's good news. The proof that God has graciously, I know that this is hard to believe sometimes, y'all. I, I feel that too. I, I know that like grasping like, Lord, I, all right, I understand what you've said, but I don't feel it. Okay, I want you to know you're not alone. But we can hold on while we wait for our feelings to catch up to what we know. Okay, and this is the surest the surest proof that God has graciously looked upon the humble estate of his servants is that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, in the humble estate of a servant to redeem us. It's the incarnation. If you're wondering, what's the incarnation about in this whole Christian thing? This seems crazy. God in the flesh, that is strange. We want to say to you, we know. <laughs> it is strange, right? It's a strange way that God chose to save the world. But if you understand more of the story, you begin to see the rhythms and the sensibilities that inform what God has done in the world and why it came through an incarnation. Because God wanted to, to show us what it really means to be human and what he did not assume. The church fathers would say he could not heal. He took on every, all the fullness of our humanity so that he could heal it. And that's why we have this incarnation. The redemption that God offers becomes ours by faith alone and Christ alone, not your promises to do better, not your trying harder. The message of the Christian faith is not do better. Right? Like, I think, I fear sometimes people get that experience of the church. That's not our message. 
Our message isn't try harder. Our message is trust in Jesus. He's your sufficiency. He's your enough. The great reversal is coming, friends. You might be poor now, but by faith you will inherit the earth. You might be mourning now, but by faith one day your mourning will be turned into dancing. You might be in the place of humiliation right now, but by faith your humiliation will give way to exaltation. We're blessed in Christ, and he has done great things for us. And through union with Christ, we can sing Mary's song now as contemporaries. Just like John Legend and Wyclef and and the Roots were able in that documentary to put a new contemporary spin on an old song. We're invited to sing the song of hope in a weary land. We're invited to trust that God can create pools in the desert and streams in a wasteland. If God can raise the dead, he can change the living. That's our hope. He's at work. And that leads us to our final point, divine liberation. Divine liberation. What drives Mary to her song? The freedom that the Lord has promised and worked for his people. Now check it out. We, if we're going to understand Mary's song, if we really want to get it, we got to appreciate something of the context for Mary as a, as a first century Jewish woman. Listen, in the second century B.C., the Jewish people fought courageously to maintain their cultural and religious heritage when at the time there was this profound spread of Greek culture. It was the process developing after Alexander the Great's conquering of the world that was known as Hellenism, the Hellenization of the world. And what, the, what they would do is they would come into new territories and basically force everyone to assimilate to Greek culture. And, and when they came to the Jewish people, the Jewish people were like, nah. We're holding on to our culture, and we're holding on to our faith. And what that ended up turning into was a war that was waged where where the leaders of the Jewish community, the, the Maccabees, won a victory that led them to a season of independence. It felt like things were turning up, and they were encouraged by these developments. And that's when they rededicated the temple at Hanukkah, and they enjoyed a brief period where It didn't feel like there were all these big powers that were constricting them. And as Americans, we we can appreciate and and express our love for independence. That's that's how we get down. And and, and it's hard for us to even imagine our, our liberties being stripped away from us. Like the indignity of having your freedoms taken from you, it's hard to imagine. But this is exactly what happened after a brief period of independence. The Jewish people once again saw an empire, the Roman Empire, sweep in and with a heavy hand, put them in a place where they were overtaxed, they were burdened, and they felt like they were regularly intimidated. They were squashed. And there were three different primary responses in the Jewish context. There was a diversity of responses. Some of the Jewish people said, we need to go to war again. Others of the Jewish people said, no, we we probably need to assimilate. And then the third group said, we need to wait for Messiah to make this right. In other words, what I'm saying is that what we have in Mary's song is an Advent spirit, awaiting in the tension for the king to come and make it right, the true king. And this is what we see being reflected in verse 51 of the text. If you take a look, this is why it's so stark. 
It goes from my soul magnifies the Lord to Mary's like, God's going to get these suckers, right? Like that's, that's the vibe. <laughs> and, and, and if you feel like you are stomped on and beat down today, God's going to lift you up. And if you are riding high, and a lot of the presumption of wealth at this time was that it was gotten through unjust means. And that's why it's the, you get these blanket statements. But in the context of political, socioeconomic, and religious oppression, Mary announces this future vision of justice that will be ushered in with the coming of the Messiah. And, and here's what's interesting. She's speaking of a future liberation as if it's already past tense. Do you see that in the text? And biblical scholars call this a proleptic reference. It's to speak of it as if it's already done. It's like, oh, man, it's like if your favorite football team is about to play, so I'm sorry, team. And you say, oh, man, we already won that. It's faith. It's confidence. What Mary expresses is confidence in the justice of God that the great reversal is coming. Her hope is so tangible, so real, that she can speak of it as if it's already done. And one of the things that I think is important for us to, to make sure we, we are aware of is that we don't come to texts like this and spiritualize them. Because what, what is, there was an ancient error in the church um, where people would come to passages like this and they would think about life in this way. They would think, oh, you know what's really important and valuable to God? The spiritual. And you know what doesn't matter, what is unimportant to God is the material, the physical. And what we are suggesting in the Christian faith is that when you see the incarnation of the Son of God, it lets you know how important the material and physical aspects of life are to God. And it's meant to help you to understand the contours of Christian spirituality. Because it's not just about, you know, the spiritual stuff. It's both and. We don't have to do an either or here or falsely dichotomize this life. And so it's hard to imagine this word in the text about what God will do for the, the poor and merely reduce it down to the spiritually poor. Yes, it's a message for the spiritually poor, but it also has real-life implications for the materially poor through the life of God's community. And what that means for us as we live in a democratic society. Okay, remember, this whole... <laughs> there, are, there are artistic reflections of this song of Mary, the Magnificat, and it's like Mary, like, stomping down the tyrants, right? Like, it's, it's, this is a very revolutionary text in, in pretty much every way. But the, the thing that I want to communicate to, to, to you all, and I want us to be thinking about, is that as we live in a democratic society, we have to be careful that we're not conserving things that the Lord is judging, and that we're not giving into a progress that leads away from a kingdom ethic. It, it, we have to be very careful about that in the way that we work out these kingdom ethics that are at play in this text. And we must, regardless of whether people might label us a, a conservative or a progressive or whatever, we ought to be much less concerned about that than we are about being faithful to the scriptures. That's the call. And, and how do we keep this intention? How do we keep this in mind? Just two things that I would offer. First, always remember when you read in the Gospel of Luke that it's volume one of two volumes. So if you're wondering about the interpretation of these things, what I would say to you is that what, what Luke does is he shows you 
the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ in his earthly life in his gospel. But in, in the book of Acts, the second volume, he shows you how that work is carried on continually through the church. The church picks up the work of Christ and continues it. And what do we see in the early church? We see word and deed ministry. We see them preaching the gospel to people spiritually lost and setting aside enough time to make sure that the widows were getting a just distribution. Acts 6. If they were always a word and deed people. They were always about material and immaterial. The fullness of life. And that's the spirituality that I want us to live into. The fullness of it. This is, this is the way that the first century church heard this message. It was an invitation to participate in this revolution, to reveal a new ethic and a new set of kingdom values. They were no longer to play by the rules of oppressive and dehumanizing modes of being in the day. They were to be countercultural and cross-cultural, and it came at great cost. This, don't, don't get me wrong. Just because they were following Jesus didn't make it an easy journey but it made the journey worth it. This shaped the, the discipleship categories of the first century church, and I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting to you that it should shape our discipleship categories. What does it actually mean to follow Jesus? And we must always ask ourselves and wrestle with the question, do we really want to be like Jesus? Do we? We might want to be like Jesus in certain ways, but I think if we interrogate our hearts, we realize, we discover that I don't really want to be like Jesus in that way. I don't want to be that patient when these people taking all day in this line. I don't want to be that gracious when people cut me off in traffic. I mean, love for enemies, it sounds romantic until you got an enemy to love. That's what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said everybody is forgiving until they got something to forgive. I said, why you got to choose violence in the morning, C.S. Lewis? Coming for me like that, right? <laughs> I want us to wrestle with it, and I, and, and, and I want us to answer in the affirmative. Do we really want to be like Jesus? I, yes, we do. And, and it, it will be challenging. There will be difficulties. There will be sufferings. In this world, we will have troubles, but take heart. He's overcome the world. If you take a look at verses 54 to 55, the, we get the final mention of God's promise to Abraham in which blessing goes out to the whole world through his family. And again, check it out, we're invited not to be spectators, but to be participants. There's a big difference, y'all. Now, listen, you can get this. And, and I apologize if this seems... So 101. But my goal was to be clear and helpful. And I don't want it to be the case that you got to have advanced degrees in order to understand God's word preached on Sunday morning. Do you realize that there's a big difference between watching a football game at the stadium and being on the field? Those are two different experiences, y'all. And they call for a different kind of training. When you're sitting in the stands, this training is enough. right? But if you're going to take the field, you can't think that just because you've watched a lot of football, you're ready to take the field. There are serious changes in our practices, in our habits, in our diet that have to take 
shape, if, if we're going to become the kind of person who could take that field. And the Christian faith is similar in that way. If we're going to live up into the fullness of what God has called us to, we've got to take up different practices, different rhythms, different habits, different diets, so that we can live into it. Listen, you hear a message like this, and I know how easy it is to be cynical, <laughs> to, to, to allow the, the trials and difficulties of this world to knock all the hope out of you, to become resigned, hopeless. And what that often does is it leads us to accept the status quo, the status quo. But we have to believe the gospel and fearlessly participate in all these different spheres of life with a distinctly Christian ethic and faith that the Lord will continue his work. Now, check it out. The message reflects verses 54 and 55 like this. I love how this sounds. Listen, it says, he embraced his chosen child, Israel. He remembered and piled on the mercies, piled them high. It's exactly what he promised beginning with Abraham and right up to Nile. We must believe the gospel, the good news that we awake every morning to new mercies that are piled high. He piles them high. And even as we continue through this life, the scriptures tell us that as we walk, some of us look back over our shoulders, right? Because we're afraid of who's creeping on us. But the Bible tells us that there are two that are creeping on us, goodness and mercy following us all the days of our life. That's what you can expect from the Lord. He's piling high the mercies. And because he piles high the mercies on us, we pile high the mercies on others. It is this reciprocation that we receive from the Lord to give. We have been blessed to be a blessing. God has loaded us with goodness for the life of the world, not for selfish indulgence. The scriptures tell us that God loved us. And so we must love others. But it doesn't stop there. God has, God has called us to justice. Why? Because he has justified us. God has called us to liberate the oppressed. Why? Because we were the oppressed who were liberated. God calls us to uphold and fight for the, the dignity of all peoples. Why? Because he dignified us through an incarnation and the promise of a restoration. Why? We do great things for others. Why? Because he's done great things for us. Do you see this? The surest indicator that you are digesting the gospel, that you are receiving the gospel fresh daily, is that you're beginning to see it reflected in your disposition toward others. Your treatment of others is really the acid test of what your faith is looking like. And that might be humbling, it might be scary, but you don't need to fear. You know, God was rightfully angry at our rebellion, but God is never mad at our return. Repentance is always available to us to turn our hearts back to the Lord, to come back to him and trust that he will make us new, he will forgive us, and he will set us on a better trajectory than we were trying to get for ourselves. Here's how I want to capture this passage, and what does it mean for us? I think most of you are probably familiar with the Underground Railroad and the story of the Underground Railroad. But if you're not... Here's the basic contours. During the antebellum period of slavery in the United States, there were people who were able to get free. And those people could have enjoyed their freedom in the North all by themselves. But that's not what they did. Because they could not rest content with enjoying freedom in the North while their beloved family members 
friends and neighbors were still struggling under the force of oppression. And so what they did at great risk to themselves out of their faith in what they were doing and in the Lord, they would expose themselves. They would risk themselves. They, they would expose themselves in vulnerability to try and retrieve others so that they could enjoy freedom. You know what Frederick Douglass once said? And he was making a forceful argument to people who were against his message of liberation and, um, and, and freedom. He said this. He said, everybody's an abolitionist. Everybody is an abolitionist. Everyone wants freedom for themselves. The question is, will you be an abolitionist for others? And I think that's what the invitation of this text is. If you are someone in need of that liberation, of that freedom, of that divine consideration, what this text is telling you is that there's nobody so low that you have found yourself off God's radar. And I hope that you can appreciate that the man of sorrows, Jesus Christ, the one who was so poor he did not have a place to lay his head, that he is evidence that God sees and cares and that God means to set you free. And if you in this world are not in that situation, this text calls for circumspection, for reflection on the life that we're living. What are we living for? What are we out to do? What kind of lives are we building? We ought to be abolitionists for our neighbors in every way that we can. God took one good look at us, and look what happened. And my question for you is, what might happen if we took one good look at our neighbors? If we really saw them, if we were really able to sustain empathy and see life through their eyes, to be more curious about what their lives must be like, and to be more curious about why the Lord would have our lives intersecting with theirs to begin with. God is always doing many things at once and all things well. And that is what he's doing in your life too. And so I want to invite you during this Advent season, to take this song of Mary and let it cultivate within you the right kinds of discontentment. We should never be adjusted to injustice, right? Like, we should never be adjusted to things that are, that are contrary to the way God intended the world. There's a good, godly sense of discontent. I'm discontented at violence in our city. Discontented about the poor conditions in which many children in our city experience their educations. Like there are all different kinds of ways that a, a holy discontent can energize us because we are, we're, we're determined to see it made right. Uh, as application, I just want to say that in God's family, in God's church, there should be no invisible people, no see-through people. We should never find ourselves stepping over certain people to get to the people that we really want to deal with. Everyone in our sphere is an opportunity for us to love like Christ loves. And ask yourself this question. Who might I be passing up who needs to be noticed? Listen, even if you don't happen to have change on you, though, I would encourage you to prepare for your day with the expectation you're going to meet someone in need and be prepared to meet the need. Your day doesn't, you don't have to be caught off guard. We live in a city. Prepare. And be ready to meet someone's need. It can be something simple. But even if you happen to forget to prepare and you come across someone, look at them. Greet them. 
wish them well, and ask if there's anything you could pray for them on. That's not, that's not too hard, right? You will be surprised at how much it means to people that you notice them. Uh, look around. Where do you see captives? Physical captives, spiritual captives. And ask God for the opportunity to participate in their liberation. Last thing I want to encourage you to do is look around. Where do you see God at work? And how might you participate in that work? That's, that's what mission is. It's not us. Come on, Jesus. I'm out here on mission. Where are you at? Jesus is like, I've been waiting for you from eternity. I've been at work in this place much longer than you even been alive. So if you have the sense that God is already going out ahead of you and you get to join in his work, that makes the work a manageable kind of work that you don't feel like, well, I have to carry all this because God obviously ain't doing nothing over here, right? No, we trust God's at work. It could be through a nonprofit. It could be through a local school. It could be through a series of relationships or a club. It, 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 the, really, the possibilities are endless. But where do you have an opportunity to participate in God's work? I think it's very important that if you cannot name particular names of people to whom you've been sent, you're probably not on mission. Think about that. If you can't name the particular names of people to whom you've been sent, you're probably not living on mission. That is not original to me. Pastor Abe Cho said that to my church at our fall retreat last year and blew everybody up. Okay? And I've just found that to be very helpful and concrete. Can you name the people to whom you've been sent? And what might it look like to pray these realities into their lives and into the relationship? Let's join in Mary's song, revolting against the effects of the curse in this world with hope, confident that the Lord will, will help us in remembrance of his mercy. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us. We ask that you would encourage us in your word to trust and follow you and to expect great things from you and to recognize the great things you've already done. Do that for Grace Meridian Hill and our whole network. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.